After this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Menuhites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazanon, Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God of who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. O our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel, and gave it forever to the descendants of of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword or judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before the temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance? O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood there before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite, and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. He said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites came or then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Early in the morning they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they, de- and they were defeated. The men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the men of Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder, and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value, more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. 
On the fourth day, they assembled in the Valley of Baraka, where they praised the Lord. This is why it is called the Valley of Baraka to this day. Thanks, Jay. Folks, I think you did an excellent job on all those names, don't you? Well done. That was awesome. Hey, if you haven't turned to the passage that Jay just read, uh, now would be an excellent time to do it because we're going to continue to take a look at this wonderful passage as we are in a sermon series on prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. This morning, we're going to be looking at this wonderful prayer of petition from King uh, Jehoshaphat. Uh, And my sermon this morning is entitled Confidence in the Crisis from 2 Chronicles chapter 20. But if you want to maybe turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 17, we're going to look at some select verses from chapter 17 um, as we head our way into chapter 20. So I hope that you have your Bible out in front of you. Let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, again, we ask for your presence among us. We ask that your spirit would come now in power and make the words that I say faithful and true to your word. I pray that you would apply your um, eternal and powerful word to our hearts and to our specific circumstances. In particular, Father, the crises uh, that we face in our life, the crises that uh, have come or will come or even we're in the midst of them now. Lord, teach us to respond to them in the way that Jehoshaphat did in your people of old, that we would have confidence in you, that we would trust in your power and in your purposes, and God, that we would turn to you in prayer. Teach us to respond in this way, we pray, and all of God's people said, amen. Well, in her children's book, you may have heard of it or even read it to your children, Alexander in the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day, In her book, Judith Vorist captures one young man's, uh, Alexander's, really bad day. Well, the day begins rather ominously. Alexander writes, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there is gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed, I I tripped over my skateboard. And by mistake, I, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was still running, and I could tell that it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good Very bad day. Well, if you were to keep reading, Alexander's day continues to be bad, as he has a a bad seat in the the carpool car. He's rejected by his friends. He has a rather pitiful lunch in in his lunch bag that day. After school, he has to go to the dentist. And who likes going to the dentist? And to make make matters worse uh, for dinner, he has lima beans. In fact, he says, and I quote, We had lima beans for dinner, and I hate lima beans. Can I get an amen? Amen. There, there was kissing on TV, and I hate kissing on TV. My bath was too hot. I got soap in my eyes. My marble went down the drain. I had to wear my railroad pajamas. I hate my railroad pajamas. And so he closes his day by saying, it's been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Friends, have you ever had a day like that? Certainly all of us have. And in our text this morning, we're going to see the start of what I would call a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day for a man named Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat was king over Judah, as you can see in the picture behind me. He ruled over the southern kingdom of Judah during what is known as the divided kingdom in Israel. And so there's Judah, whose capital is Jerusalem. And there's a picture of maybe what King Jehoshaphat looked like, or maybe not at all, right? But he, he, he lived 
and reigned in the southern kingdom early on during Israel's divided kingdom. Now, as we read before, and we'll read, uh, we'll read again, his day is going to start off with some rather bad news. There is a coalition of invading armies that are essentially at his doorstep. And so the question that I want to pose to us this morning is, A, how is King Jehoshaphat going to respond to a moment of crisis in his life? And then, of course, the follow-up question is, how should we, as followers of Christ... As believers in the one true God, how should we respond to moments of unexpected crisis in our life? Um, Friends, maybe you're in a moment like that even now. Maybe you've just made it through a moment of unexpected crisis. But whether you've been through one or whether you're in one, friends, we know that uh, there's likely one around the bend. And so because life is that way... Crisis doesn't typically come when we expect it. It doesn't uh, tell us it's coming a day or two uh, beforehand. It just simply comes, as it did for King Jehoshaphat. And so I want us to learn from the king. How, how should we respond as God's people when circumstances and situations like this arise? I think the answer that we get, if I could summarize Second Chronicles 17 and 18 and 19 and 20, which is, is the account of King Jehoshaphat's rule and reign, I would summarize it this way. You can see it on the screen behind me. People, people who, number one, desire to obey God, and number two, have a life of dependency upon God, people who desire to obey and depend upon God, Well, they pray. They pray in times of crisis. And, not only that, they call others to join them. I think if you could summarize what we see about King Jehoshaphat's rule and reign is that he sought to obey God, although he didn't do it perfectly. He lived a life of dependency upon God. And so when crisis came into his life, personally he prayed, and then secondly he said, hey, let's pray together. So first of all, I want us to see a little bit about the person of the king. Who was King Jehoshaphat? I'm just going to see nuggets, if you will, from 2 Chronicles 17 and 18 and 19, a little bit from 2 Kings 22, which also tells us about his rule. Because before we get to his prayer, we need to learn about his person. In other words, the type of prayer that we see coming from the lips of King Jehoshaphat doesn't just come from anyone. It comes from a life of a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, who loves God, who seeks to, to submit his or her life to God, who, who wants others to know about God, who calls upon God. They're in the habit of calling upon God in times of crisis. And so what do we learn about the person of King Jehoshaphat. Well, four quick things that we can learn. Number one, King Jehoshaphat pursued a life of obedience to God. In fact, we learn in 2 Kings chapter 22, it was said of him that he did what was right. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And while Jehoshaphat wasn't perfect, and we'll see that here momentarily, the, the general direction of his life was that he sought to obey God. He wanted to please God. And so the first question we have to ask ourselves is, well, does this describe us? Are we people 
whose lives are characterized by a pursuit of obedience to our God? If so, then likely we're going to pray a prayer like we see in chapter 20. Not only that, but Jehoshaphat was wholly devoted to God. It says, in everything, he followed the ways of his father Asa. And so we have to ask, what were the ways of his father Asa? Which I think is a cool name, by the way. Well, we, we see that his father, who was king before him, King Asa, it was said of him that the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his day. If you know a little bit uh, about the kings of Israel and Judah during this divided kingdom, uh, that you could count the number of kings that were faithful to God, the number of kings that sought to be obedient to God, maybe on one hand, but maybe uh, even on two. There weren't many. In fact, the history of the kings of Israel was, is essentially a litany of unfaithful men who pursued power and pleasure and prestige. However, King Asa and his son King Jehoshaphat were the exceptions to the rule. They were one of the few who were faithful and were wholly devoted to God. Number three, Jehoshaphat made it a point during his rule and reign in Judah not only to pursue obedience to God personally, but he's, he's the king. He can do what he wants. And so he sought to influence and to lead others and to teach others about God's law. In fact, in Second Chronicles chapter 7, as well as in chapter 17, as well as in chapter 19, we're going to see that he um, appoints priests, he appoints Levites and other uh, city leaders to go throughout the, the, the cities and to go throughout the countryside, uh, instructing the people, this is what God's law is. This is what we're supposed to be doing. And so he not only was committed to God personally, but he wanted others to be committed to God. One of the things that marks his reign, unlike many of the other uh, kings uh, during this time period, is that he actually got rid of the idols. You'll know if you read through First and Second Kings that idolatry marked much of the life of the kings and the people of Israel and Judah during this time. However, there were some reformers. And King Asa and King Jehoshaphat were reformers. They tore down the idols and they turned the hearts of the people back towards God. Number four, not only was Jehoshaphat uh, uh, living a life of obedience, he was devoted to God, he wanted others to be devoted to God. Fourth, we see that it was characteristic for Jehoshaphat to turn to the Lord for help. We see it in at least two or three other places, but I'll just share um, one with you. Uh, remember I said that Jehoshaphat was a good king, but he wasn't a perfect king. That should be encouraging to us, because we can be good and faithful followers of God, but we're not perfect. We have our flaws, and so did King Jehoshaphat. In fact, his flaw was essentially going to war, making treaties, sort of being friendly with kings that were evil. In particular, the evil King Ahaz in the northern kingdom. And so we learn in Second Chronicles chapter 18 that Ahaz essentially says, Hey, King Jehoshaphat, let's go to war together. And he's like, Yeah, okay, that sounds like a good idea. And they get together and Jehoshaphat's like, Hey, we should seek the Lord on this. Should we go to war? And evil King Ahaz is like, oh yeah, let's just go to war. It's going to be fine. Here, here are all my prophets. They're telling me to go to war. They're all false prophets. And King Jehoshaphat's like, no, no, no. Don't you have a real prophet? Like a prophet of the true God? Long story short, the true prophet comes in and says, uh, if you go to war, King Ahaz, you're going to die. 
you think that might be a clue to King Jehoshaphat that he shouldn't go to war. Well, he does. He goes to war with evil King Ahaz. Evil King Ahaz dies in the battle. But there's a, there's a, a point in the battle where King Jehoshaphat is recognized by the enemies. And they are pursuing him. And so put yourself in his shoes for a moment. You are literally in the midst of hand-to-hand combat and you're fleeing for your life. They're on your heels. You can hear the horse's hooves beating behind you. What are you going to do in that moment? Well, what does King Jehoshaphat do in that moment? He turns to the Lord. He prays. In fact, it says that he cried out, and I take that to mean to the Lord, he cried out, And the Lord helped him. And so my point is that this is a man, when trouble comes, when distress comes, when there is an option, when when there's a possibility, it is in his character to say, what does God want me to do? I'm in trouble. God help me. And we're going to see that very clearly in chapter 20. And so that's the person. Let's look at his prayer. So if you have your Bibles open, let's turn and focus our efforts on chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. The text begins in verses 1 uh, and 2 with the crisis. The crisis is going to come. It's going to be a a, a horrible, terrible, no good kind of a day. Verse 1. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Minuites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, A vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It's already at Hazaz. Tamar, that is, in Gedi. And so the story of his reign uh, continues in chapter 20. Notice the connecting words. After this. So you have to ask the question, after what? Right? After what? When is this happening? Well, it's interesting to me because most immediately following these verses in chapter 19, we see that um, King Jehoshaphat uh, basically appoints leaders. He says to these leaders, hey, you're going to be judges. People are going to come to you. I want you to judge rightly and fairly because you represent God. In other words, he had just taken steps uh, to uh, encourage the people of God to be obedient to God. He's been faithful to God. And it's after this faithful display, both to God and His Word, in the midst of, we're told in chapter 17, a time of God's blessing. In fact, we're told in chapter 17 that this was a time of peace, that no kings had come against Jehoshaphat or the kingdom of Judah. However, in the midst of peace, in the midst of prosperity, and in the midst of His obedience, what happens? Crisis. Crisis comes into his life. To be more precise, this enemy coalition was about 15 miles south of his doorstep, south of the capital city of Jerusalem on the western shore of the Dead Sea. His life and his entire kingdom were on the brink of extinction. And so what does he do? Well, we're going to see in a moment, but I think that leads us to our first principle about prayer for the day, and it's this, obedience to God does not guarantee that crisis won't come into our lives. It's, it's not if we face trial and crisis, but it's when. As James, Jesus' little half-brother, says in his little letter, he says, consider it pure joys, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. And so this trial has come 
to the doorstep of King Jehoshaphat. He had been faithful to God. He had been obedient to God. He had been a reformer. And so I don't know about you, but it very well could have been that he was a little frustrated about that. He could have been angry with God. It would have been easy for King Jehoshaphat to say something like this. God, what's the deal? I'm trying to bring the nation back to you. I've torn down the idols. I've been a faithful follower. I want them to know that you're faithful. And now we're facing annihilation at the hands of this pagan coalition. I don't deserve this kind of treatment. You know, sometimes we respond when crisis comes our way. If we are a man or a woman like Jehoshaphat, if we're honest, that's what we tell God. We would say, God, what's the deal? I'm trying to be faithful to you. trying to live my life after you. I even serve others. And, let you, and yet you've allowed this crisis to come into my life. Have you ever responded that way to crisis? I know that I have. And yet Jehoshaphat seemingly doesn't do that because he knows that obedience to God, well, it doesn't guarantee anything. It doesn't guarantee that crisis won't come. But how do we respond then to that crisis? Well, we should respond like he does in verse 3 and on. He seeks the Lord. Notice verse 3. There's his initial response, and it's completely reasonable. It says, Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. So what is then the king's initial response? Hey, there's an invading army on your doorstep. Uh, They're just around the bend. Um, How do you feel? What does he say? Well, I feel great. This is wonderful. What does he say? It says that he was alarmed. It's completely reasonable. Most, more literally, it says he was, he, he was afraid. The word means that he responded to crisis, as we all naturally do, by being afraid. The word means to be afraid, or to feel anxious about the circumstance, or to be apprehensive about the circumstance. Friends, let me ask you. Is there something in your life that makes you afraid? Is there a circumstance that God has allowed into your life that you would say, I feel anxious about it. I'm apprehensive about it. Well, you're in good shoes. So is Jehoshaphat. And so his natural first response was was fear, apprehension. It's reasonable. But then what does he do? Notice it says that he resolved. He resolved to do what? Well, he could have done a number of things. I think um, something that would have been maybe natural and understandable to some degree, was he could have acted in his own power. He could have turned to his own resources. And so it could read, it could could have read Jehoshaphat resolved to uh, muster the troops. Jehoshaphat resolved to prepare for battle. Jehoshaphat resolved to enlist his advisors. Um, He resolved to negotiate with the the army. So he could have resolved to do a number of things. He could have responded in a number of ways, some of which would have been reasonable, some some maybe not. But what did he resolve to do? Here's the, the point, my friends. What does he do first? Jehoshaphat resolved, it says, to inquire of the Lord. Literally, it has it says it to he he gave his face, in other words, he turned his face to seek Yahweh. The word seek, 
translated here in inquire, it literally it means to trample underfoot, which you're like, how does, how does that make sense? To seek something to trample underfoot. The idea is that you trample something underfoot. You beat a path to God in your prayer life because you so frequently go to him in prayer. It's fantastic language. The story is told of early Christian converts that they were devoted to private times of prayer. And so each one, uh, as the story goes, had a separate spot in the woods, in the thickets, where they would go to pray. And of course, over time, they would always go to the same spot. And so what would happen? Well, they would beat a path underneath their feet uh, to go pray. And of course, if one of them began to neglect their prayer time, well, what would happen? Well, the grass would begin to grow. And so one of them would kindly remind the negligent one, brother, sister, the grass grows on your path. This is the the language of prayer that is used here. He beat a path to the Lord in his personal prayer life. And so that leads us to principle number two, that we should respond to crisis with personal prayer. That's what Jehoshaphat did. This is how Christians should respond. We seek God's face. We seek his direction. We seek his word. And we seek his input first. He could have done other things. We must do other things as well in times of crisis. But we must do only one thing first. And that is to seek the Lord. He resisted the temptation to panic, to get angry, to turn to his armies. He turned to the Lord first. And so friends, what do you do first? When crisis comes. Not only, notice, did he turn to the Lord personally, but notice the end of verse 3. It says, and, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. In other words, it wasn't enough for King Jehoshaphat to simply pray alone in his prayer closet. Was it good for him to do that? You bet. Should he have done that? Absolutely. But it wasn't enough for him. He called upon all uh, the nation to join him in prayer and fasting in a very public manner. And the people responded. Verse, verse 4, the people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard. And then, well, we're going to see what he prayed in just a moment. But before we do, we see a third principle of prayer. We should respond to crisis not only by praying personally, but what is it good and right for us to do? Hey, you and you and you and you, my brother and my sister in Christ, guess what? Come pray with me, right? We need to resolve to pray personally, yes, but we should also involve others. He was not afraid to tell others of his, of the crisis. Of course, it had implications for them as well. But even if it had not, it would have been good and right for him to enlist the prayers of others. And so once crisis then knocks on our door, it drives us to prayer, how then should we pray in moments of crisis? Well, I see about four points here, four four ways, four traits of prayer in moments of crisis. And it begins in verse 6. We see in verse 6 that Jehoshaphat praises God based on his sovereign power. And he said, verse 6, Lord, Yahweh, the God of our ancestors, are you not God who is in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations, like the ones on our doorstep. Power and might are in your hands. 
and they're not in ours. And no one can withstand you. The prayer begins by focusing on God's what? On his power, on his attributes, specifically his power. Notice he says with a rhetorical question, God, aren't you the God who is in heaven? It's a statement. You are the God who is in heaven. Friends, Jehoshaphat is talking more about, uh, he's not talking uh, so much about God's address, right? The emphasis is not so much where God is, but the fact that he rules over the, the universe in heaven. And so if we were to make a statement today, like um, President Trump is in the White House, um, am I referring only to the fact that he and his family physically live in the White House? Well, we could be meaning that, but, but what are we really saying? We're, well, we're saying that he is president, right? And as president, he has certain powers. That's, that's what Jehoshaphat is saying. Think about, for instance, Psalm 155.3, where the psalmist says, Our God is in heaven. What is the logical consequence of the fact that our God is in heaven? It says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. And so Jehoshaphat is praising God and reminding he and his hearers that the God that we serve is powerful. And that's important because a little bit later in verse 12, he's going to admit that they're powerless, for we have no power to face this vast army. Friends, what do we need to recognize in times of crisis? God, you are in heaven. You have all the power, right? And we have none. John on Wuchiqua writes in his wonderful little book called Prayer about praying to God in heaven. He says, and I quote, he says, we begin then with the settled confidence of asking someone who's at the top of the pecking order, right? In other words, when we're praying to our God who's in heaven, he's at the top of the food chain. When we pray, he says, we are holding onto God's omnipotence. He is in control. He needs permission from no one. He is coerced by none. No one can stop his plans. Our Father in heaven is capable, and his agenda always wins. Can I get an amen, please? Thank you. That, that's who we serve, and that's where he begins. And so, fourth principle of prayer. In times of crisis, friends, we need to remember God's attributes His power, yes, for sure. And there are many other attributes of God that we need to remember in crisis. We need to remember His goodness, His trustworthiness, His wisdom, His holiness. And the list goes on and on and on. And so He begins by focusing on God. God, you're powerful. I'm praising you. You have the power. Second, in verses 7 through 9, He prays based on God's scriptural promises. This is fascinating. Not only does he praise God because he's powerful, but he is going to bring to mind scriptural promises and say, God, would you act on these? Notice in verse 7, he talks about God's actions. And in verses 8 and 9, he talks about God's agreement. First, his actions. Once again, in the form of a rhetorical question. Verse 7, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever, important word, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. Here what he's doing is he is recounting the fact that God drove out the inhabitants of the promised land before Joshua and the judges, right? You displaced those people. God, you gave us this land forever and you you, you promised uh, Abraham in Genesis 17, and I quote, 
that the land would be an everlasting possession to you and your descendants. In other words, God, what, these people are about to take our land, but you gave it to us. What's going on here? And then he quotes God's agreement. Verse 8, they have lived in it, speaking of the people of, of Judah, they have lived in it and have built and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, the temple. Saying, and here what he does is he sort of paraphrases, he quotes a prayer prayed by King Solomon in Second Chronicles 6 at the dedication of the temple. He's, he's mimicking, um, he's calling upon God to be faithful to the prayer of King Solomon. Verse 9, if calamity comes upon us, friends, let me ask you, has calamity come upon them in, that, in, in this time? Yeah, right? If calamity comes upon us, whether the, so, whether, whether the sword, um, whether the sword or, of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress. Friends, is that what they were doing at that very moment? Yes, that's what they were doing at that very moment. And you will hear us and save us. And so in these verses, he's reminding, if you will, God, he's promised to deliver them if they would humbly seek them, seek him and seek his help. And so that leads us to a fifth principle of prayer. In times of crisis, we need to remember not only God's power, but his promises. And friends, while the promises that we who are Christians and are under the new covenant might be slightly different than the promises that God gave to those under the old covenant, the principle still applies. We could, for instance, call upon 2 Corinthians 4.16, where Paul writes, Therefore, we don't lose heart. Though we are outwardly wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Or chapter 12, verse 9, But he said to me, Paul is speaking about God, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest upon me, and so on and so forth. And so, friends, if you are or when you come to a moment of crisis, not only remember God's power, but remember his promises and ask him to keep them. Not only that, third, we see that he protests. He There's a slight hint of protestation here in verses 10 through 11. He protests uh, to God based on their serious predicament. Verse 10. But now, notice the contrast there. God, you promised, right, that this is our land, and you promised that if we call to you, you're going to save us. But now, here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, uh, whose territories you you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them, and they did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance? Do you hear a bit of the protestation here? Do you hear that this is sort of like a child saying, that's not fair? That's kind of what he's saying. He's saying, God, these folks, these folks, remember when we were coming out out of Egypt, and we had to go through their land, you wouldn't let us destroy them. But now, guess what they're doing? Now they're coming to destroy us. God, hey, this is, this is not fair. This is not fair. You need to do something about it. But, but notice what he does. And I think it's worth emulating. When the king is praying to the Lord about the crisis, does he sugarcoat it? 
Does he like make it less than what it is? Is he afraid to tell God, this is the predicament we are in? Not at all. He lays it out there. This is the predicament, God. This is it. And and friends, we should do the same in our prayers in the moment of crisis. But that's not all. There's a fourth trait. He offers a plea based on their sworn powerlessness. Verse 12 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. This is great. He says, Our God, will you not judge them? God, will you, will you do something here? This, they're not acting fairly. They're not acting justly. Would you, would you do something? Or God, would you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army <clears throat> that is attacking us. We do not know what to do. But, but our eyes are on you. And so he calls attention to God's ability to deal with the problem. Notice what he does. He admits their own powerlessness. We have no power. He admits ignorance. We don't know what to do. Friends, um, is that true of us in moments of crisis? We can also say, we can't deal with this. This is beyond our, our reach. We don't know what to do. And then he says the most touching expression of trust in God, really to be found almost anywhere in the scriptures. He says, we don't know what to do, but our eyes, our eyes are upon you. And that leads us to principle number six. In times of crisis, we need to inform God of our need, as he did in 10 and 11, and we need to turn our eyes to him. And we're not informing him as if he doesn't know, right? Of course God knows. We're telling him what we need. We're reminding ourselves that ultimately we don't have the, the capability to respond. We don't know what to do, right? We're turning our, our eyes to God in faith, admitting our powerlessness, admitting our ignorance, and that, that then provides the opportunity for faith. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to inland China, he faced a, a few terrible, awful bad days in his life. Uh, His spouse died. One of his children died um, on the mission field. His life was often in danger because they didn't like him preaching there. And he says this about crisis moments. He says, it doesn't really matter how great the pressure is of the crisis. It only matters where the pressure lies. He says, see that it never comes between you and the Lord. Then, the greater the pressure, the more it presses you into his breast. What a wonderful picture of how crisis pushes us towards God. And so how does the story end? We've seen the person, we've seen the kind of of prayer that he prays, we've seen that people who who seek to obey God, who, who live lives of dependency upon God, when crisis comes, they turn to the Lord personally, and they call others to join them. And we've seen from the passage how it ends. God sends a prophet, and the prophet announces to the king uh, and to the the nation, trust in God. The battle is going to be the Lord's. It's not going to be yours. You're not even going to have to lift a sword, right? All you have to do is go watch how God's going to fight for you. Literally, the battle was won without a weapon being wielded by Judah. What did they have to do? They had to trust God. They had to go and look to see how God was going to rout the enemies. All they had to do was go and watch in faith and do what? 
be prepared to take the spoils of war that God had won on their behalf. It is a spectacular story, but friends, we'll close with this and then we'll close with song. This battle that we see in Second Chronicles 20 against this great enemy of God's people, which was won by the Lord himself, it was received by faith and trust in God's power, I would submit that it's a picture, it's an image, it's a foreshadowing of the greatest battle that God would win for his people. See, our greatest enemy is not flesh and blood. It's not riders on horses or tanks or ships. But our greatest threat is Satan and sin and death. As fearsome as an invading army is, the trifecta of Satan's temptation and his rule over the world, the power of sin in our lives, and the resulting eternal damnation that we deserve, the stranglehold that death has over all humanity, friends, these are our greatest enemies. And we can't win the battle on our own. Just as he did hundreds of years before with King Jehoshaphat, Fast forward into the Gospels, and God and the person of Christ would once again fight for his people. He would once again tell those who would humbly approach him, as King Jehoshaphat did, recognizing their utter inability to defeat these enemies, their desperately lost state, that he would fight for them, that the battle would be won, not by them lifting a finger, not by their morality, not by any religious activity, that all they would have to do is receive... God would do by faith and trust, that he would do something they could never do, and that they too would enjoy the spoils of God's victory on the cross by faith. Friends, the gospel is the story of God's ultimate victory over our enemies, that he fought the battle we could never fight. He defeated our greatest enemies at the cross and in Jesus' resurrection. And he calls us then to respond in faith as Jehoshaphat did, by trusting in Jesus' finished work and enjoy the spoils of his victory for us. Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and so much more. And so friends, that's how we can respond as Jehoshaphat did through Christ and what he's done. We're going to pray and we're going to close with a song telling God that we need him. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful text and for the wonderful faith that King Jehoshaphat had. And we recognize that we too can mimic his response to crisis. And Lord, we pray even now as we know that we all, in various ways and shapes and forms and to various degrees, that we were facing crisis moments. Lord, may we not turn to our armies or to our generals or to our own wisdom uh, or to our, our, to our own resources, but may we turn to you first and foremost, knowing that you are the God who is all-powerful, and that you've given us wonderful promises, and Lord, that we can trust in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. We invite you to stand as we respond to this challenge, this message.